Hello and welcome to Poetry in Aldborough's 2021 podcast series. Messing About and Crossing Out was recorded on Friday the 5th of November during our online festival via Zoom. We hope you enjoy it. This event is hosted by Jane Kermaine, but for now, over to our festival curator, Paul Stevenson. Welcome to Poetry in Aldborough 2021. Welcome to this Poetry Weekend in Suffolk. We're delighted that you could join us for our early evening reading. The first of three events at 7pm exploring play. Uh, This event is called Messing About and Crossing Out. What is the mind if not a trickster? And what is the body if not a con artist? And what is consciousness if not the in-joke that swallows us whole? We're very, very pleased to be able to welcome four poets tonight who are going to read from new collections, spotlighting their own invention and fantasy, drag and erasure. They'll be clowning around and eavesdropping, but often using humour as a way to explore more serious territory. And I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome our host for this evening's event, Jane Kermaine, poet and editor of Nine Arches Press. Jane, as you know, Uh, is based in the Midlands. She's worked as a poet, writing, tutor and mentor for the last 10 years and led many writing workshops in museums, castles, city centres, orchards and along river banks. She's been a poet in residence at the Bronte Parsonage in Haworth and been commissioned to run workshops for the Girl Guiding UK, for Ledbury, uh, for the Birmingham Literature Festival, amongst others. She's a publisher and editor at Nine Arches, co-editor of Under the Radar, co-author with Joe Bell of How to Be a Poet, the creative writing handbook and blog series, and her own debut collection of poems, Assembly Lines, was published by Blood Axe in February 2018. Um, It's absolutely a thrill to have Jane with us tonight hosting this event. Over to you, Jane. Thank you, Paul, for such a lovely introduction. And it's a real privilege to be here and to be talking to you all and to be introducing these wonderful poets this evening. And also to be joining Poetry Olbra, albeit virtually, I can almost feel the shingle beneath my toes and smell the fish and chips outside the door. It's lovely to be here and to be enjoying some fantastic poetry with you all together on this November night. Um, This is a wonderful reading, which really spotlights wordplay, erasure, Language Games and Serious Play with poets Katie Griffiths, James McDermott, John Stone and Chrissy Williams. The four poets are going to read from collections which are inventive as they are fantastic, ranging from techniques of clowning and erasure to gameplay, vanishings and apparitions. These poems might perform sleights of hand or acts of eavesdropping, strip away language until the subtext shimmer, but each in their own way comes closer to their own moments of revelation and reclamation. And our first reader um, to introduce, I will introduce each poet as well as we go along. And our first reader for this um, reading will be James McDermott. So to tell you a little bit about James, James McDermott is is a play and TV scriptwriter based in East Anglia. As a poet, James is widely published in poetry journals and magazines, and his debut spoken word poetry collection is Monatomy published by Burning Eye Books and longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize in 2021. James's pamphlet, Erased, is published by Polari Press. He's an associate artist at Norwich Theatre Royal and Norwich Arts Centre, 
and teaches creative writing. He's also a trustee of the Holt Festival and Ink New Writing Festival. Will you please give a warm welcome to our first poet, James McDermott. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. Uh, I'm going to read seven poems today from Erased, my pamphlet of Erasure Poems on uh, found homophobic articles, documents, speeches and biblical passages in the hope of uh, reclaiming them, revealing queer subtexts and in a small way rewriting queer history. Uh, so the first poem I'm going to read is a found poem from Al Parker Productions' Gay Pornographic Video Introductory Guidance. Uh, this opens the pamphlet and it feels like it holds the very gesture of the pamphlet in its content as well. So this is called Notice. The following is being presented as a visual fantasy, as a viable alternative to actual sexual contact. Some of the precautions taken by the producers in the preparation of this fantasy have been visually omitted for editorial considerations. This is intended for viewing by a special and limited audience namely adults who request and desire material for their information, education and entertainment. Thank you very much. So this next poem is uh, an erasure on the Labouchere Amendment, which led to Oscar Wilde sentencing. So I've taken that uh, piece of legislation and enacted erasure on it in pink ink, so the words that are left reveal a new message. So this is the Labouchere Amendment. Any male, in public or private, or a party to any act with another male at discretion to be out hard. Thank you. So this is an erasure on the Buggery Act amendments, uh, which of course sentenced so many gay men uh, to absolute torture because of Henry VIII's act. So this is the Buggery Act amendment. Buggery, it may please the King's Highness, his Lord spiritual and temporal, and the commons of this present parliament assembled. It may be enacted by the same to be out, to do that, to do this act till the last day. Thank you very much. Uh, this is an erasure on the Sexual Offences Act of 1967, chapter 60, uh, and it goes like this. To homosexual acts enacted by the Queens, by and with the consent of the Lord spiritual and temporal, a homosexual act shall be provided, age 21 years, be treated, be done in a lavatory. <laughs> Thank you very much. This next one is uh, an erasure on a sign found in men's public toilets uh, when homosexuality was illegal. And the sign reads, police are aware of criminal behaviour in these toilets. So I've used that line 14 times to create a kind of sonnet uh, and enacted erasure at different places with each of those lines. So this is police are aware of criminal behavior in these toilets. Police, police in these toilets, police these toilets, police behavior in these toilets, police are aware of criminal behavior in these toilets. Police are aware in these toilets, police are aware of behavior in these toilets, police are of behavior in these toilets. Police are in these toilets. Police are of criminal behaviour in these toilets. Police are criminal in these toilets. Police are criminal behaviour. Police are criminal. Police are toilets. Thank you very much. This next poem is an erasure on section 28. 
and it's called Erase Her, and it's for Margaret Thatcher. Children have an inalienable right to be gay. Section 28 on promoting homosexuality by teaching or by publishing material. One, the following sections shall be inserted after section two of the Local Government Act 1986. Political publicity. A local authority shall intentionally promote homosexuality or publish material with the intention of promoting homosexuality. Promote the teaching in any maintained school of the acceptability of homosexuality as a family relationship. Thank you. And I'd like to leave you with uh, one of the, the penultimate poem in the book. It's a found poem from Pride protest slogans. And again, I've used uh, several of those slogans to make a 14-line love poem to Pride. So this is called LGBTQ protest slogans. Let's get one thing straight. I'm not genitals. Don't get married, people do. Donald Trump is the only dick I cannot handle. God hates flags. If God hates gays, why are we so cute? Gay by birth, fabulous by choice. Being gay is like glitter. It never goes away. Silence equals death. Action equals life. Out of the closet, into the streets. Hey, hey, ho, ho. Homophobia's got to go. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. Two, four, six, eight. How do you know your kids are straight? Majority doesn't exist. Gender is a construct. Fuck the system. Love is power. Love wins. Thank you so much. Uh, so that is a series of poems from Erased, my pamphlet of found and erasure poems from Polari Press. And you can order a copy should you wish to uh, at jamesmcdermott.bigcartel.com. Uh, thank you so much for having me at this event. It's been a pleasure to read for you. Enjoy the rest of the readings. Thank you. Thank you so much, James, for that really superb reading and for sharing with us those poems that take that radical act of erasure and use that really powerfully to reshape and reclaim um, language and to reclaim history as well and voices through the work you're doing. Um, that was just brilliant to hear and to see the poems also. Thank you. Our next reader is Katie Griffiths. To tell you a little bit about Katie, she grew up in Ottawa, Canada, in a family from Northern Ireland, and came second in the 2018 National Poetry Competition. Her pamphlet, My Shrink is Pregnant, was a winner of the Live Canon 2019 pamphlet competition. She was published in Primers Volume 1 by Nine Arches Press, and her first full-length um, collection, The Attitudes, came out earlier this year, also from Nine Arches. A member of three poetry groups, Malika's Poetry Kitchen, Red Door Poets and Octavo, Katie is also a singer-songwriter with A Woman in Goggles, the band which so far has very little to do with swimming or skiing, but is rather wonderful. Please welcome Katie Griffiths. It's a great thrill to be here on this evening with Chrissy, uh, John and James. I don't know if it's, it's actually cold where you are, but it's quite nippy here. Um, but it does have a long way to go to be like a Canadian winter, however the kind I experienced in my childhood. My first poem uh, describes an experience of being lost in snow. I played with its form so that the sender bit is the person hiding. You could, however, just read the light colored framing round the poem or the entirety of the poem across the framing and the center. And that would, I hope, make sense. 
or else you could just read the main central piece, which I'm going to do now. Snow is mutiny. Lie still, the rebellion of snow over you, its tucks fold under the Betelgeuse star. You'll fall asleep to warmth in your snowsuit. A soft microclimate gives birth on the sly, unlatches itself beyond you, where older siblings search. Let them not discover how snow conjoins, never undresses or unsews, but ensures you'll be found centuries from now, mouth sucking mitts for minimal nourishment all colour leached from clothes gone stiff beneath the flakes that heaped clemency, enshrined you up to the tiny nose hole. The generosity of snow to eke itself out, spread as far as the eye can hurt. Well, especially uh, in, in weather getting a bit colder, a cup of coffee is never far from me. In fact, I've got one right beside me now. And uh, coffee has a connection to the next poem I'm going to read. Uh, a while ago, I came across an article about Médecins Sans Frontières, which is the organization Doctors Without Borders. I speak some French and it occurred to me that Médecins sounds very like Médecins, my saints, my saints without borders. So that set me thinking, and I look for different words ending in hier, like frontier, and in the end I came up with cafetière. Messins sans cafetière. Take it to the rankled streets. Saints must forgo cafetières as a perk of their job. Coffee stains the teeth, and I prefer saints with pearly whites and their statues bird shit free. Though I've noticed saints with blots. Perhaps it goes with the territory, all those wounds. And how else to earn their keep, refusing to give up the monastery the way the rest of us refuse to go in. But a day imperiled by caffeine? Vigils, espressos, lords, cappuccinos, vespers, macchiatos. This cannot be. I shall raise the cry. Messins sans cafetière. Saints must be deprived, or else I'm no more than a mug at their feet. Milk of the earth, the serpent is coiling, and the word cankering the leaves is latte. Latte, latte. I had a very bizarre experience once on the island of Crete. One day when I was sitting quietly overlooking the sea and I had the overwhelming sensation that I was actually being enveloped by a ghost. It was, it was really weird. But rather than writing about the anecdote, I wanted to find a way of describing this altered or heightened reality um, that, that, I, that I actually found myself about in those moments. It occurred to me that I could, I could use the image of a guitar chord um, 
Because when you play a guitar chord, as you'll know, all is fine. But if you were to tune up just one string out of the six and then play the chord, it would sound almost the same, but not quite. Something would be out of kilter. So in, in my next poem about this strange experience, in the final half, uh, like tampering with a chord, one word in each line has its vowel sound tuned up to try and recreate the strangeness of the encounter. And if indeed you tuned that vowel back down, you would, you would discover a more normal word. I once sat plumb inside a ghost. Rather, she overlapped me, plumped my thoughts as I shrank in hers. I was pupil to her eyes, addend to her sum. I learned her name. I learned her by heart. She had me scrabbling bushes to honor her grave. The very same, I swear, could happen to you. The tiniest change, an umlaut cast over the air. Or the twist of a guitar's peg. Listen. With just one string tinned up, each chord's single jarring knot is a flourish to jilt the ear. Bit by bit, perception unfields, fresh inraids are made. Your garden, for instance, rain on every flare, black cries on the grass, the clouds of earth you turned, the seasons you set stare by. Easy, fail on your knees, offer up your priors, usher in the die light, believe the guests will come. It's always interesting when writing, and I'm sure all my fellow poets have this problem, who you choose to be the persona of the poem. Do you want the poem to be seen as deeply personal experience and use the pronoun I? Or do you use the pronoun you to deflect attention or, or make it more universal? Could these pronouns actually get jealous of each other? Additional notes on characters. I, central pillar of peace, despite best efforts to lie down, single but dating. Other characters say domineering, notably me, total punch bag of I, except in often quoted email message, me and Ptolemy went to the Jeff Koons exhibition, showing confident assumption of subject role. Despite temptation, tries not to fraternize with you, who, since English refuses to tutoyer, means you skulking on your own, as well as the whole rigmatoot of you all in the shit together. You, plotting to be both private and other, wave, wave the singularity card. Motivation? Once got into a department store elevator with household name after we were caught checking out teal sofas with throws, complicit, amorphous, yet hounded by clingy and deteriorating 
body who, if funding unavailable, can be ditched altogether. Well, who of us can say that we haven't made use of the good services of Google Translate from time to time? Um, I took each phrase or stanza of my next poem and put it through the Google Translate sausage machine, um, going, for example, from English into oh, random languages like, I don't know, uh, Russian or then into Spanish or into Icelandic and so on, until finally back into English. Sometimes what returned was total gobbledygook, but I try again until something more startling arrived. And these became uh, really like a counter commentary to my original, and I placed them alongside. The title of my original, In These Weeks After You Have Died, turned into After the Week of Death. So I'll read the, my original version first and in its entirety, and then the Google altered version. In these weeks after you have died, each nightfall with pencils and twigs, I lay a trap for God. Surely it is simple to bait him, but the wait is long, like a discussion I have deferred. Overhead, stars are iffy, the skies closed doors. I lie low as if the grass is a rug about to be pulled, as if the only sound worth cowering to is the snap of a body exactly as it steps outwitted into midair. I want the twigs to break under the weight of blunder, to deliver into my hands the startled prey waiting to be skinned. After the week of death, with pencils and shoots, I leave the skirt for God. It's very easy to die. Focusing on my hands is waiting for waiting. Above, the stars are thereafter. I sleep as a drop of grass, in the same voice as the one on the left side of my body, as if the only sound worth wearing is like a leaf while steps are totted in the air. I want branches to interrupt the weight of errors, to stretch hands to the victim looking for cover. But if you are in the air, I'll commit a crime. The Sunday Times magazine has for eons been running uh, a column called Relative Values in which two family members talk about each other and, and disclose secrets or have a moan or whatever. It struck me that two relatives who often live together, the self and consciousness, also deserved this kind of opportunity to vent. And so these two characters feature in my last poem called Me and Consciousness. Me is an artist in naive ceramics and lives in a 1920s terrace, loves to play pontoon. Consciousness, controversial, controversially, has never had to survive on fixed wages. 
and their relationship can be described as off and on. So consciousness speaks first. Consciousness. Me never got over the custody battle I had with mind, nor how it made headlines at the time. I suggested a compensatory dog. Me named it Bishop, not for godliness, but for the diagonal moves. It's true we're often at loggerheads, like being locked inside a bathroom with no reason to come out. I'll give context, leave teasers. I support the projects me has nurtured since childhood. Yes, I enjoy skullduggery, and I'm perhaps too tickled each time me rages or rails. Still, I watch, I love, attentive as a wasp that noses sweet cups. Me can see through this and tries not to drink. Me. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's a tussle. The thing is, consciousness always steps it up after catching wind of me, then keeps me awake all night wondering which of us is exempt from burning out. Consciousness can be less inflammatory and lie stumm, like a ball of wool in a white basket. But if I try to level with consciousness, it's only to inhabit more fully the mirage. And what to do now consciousness has found the cubbyhole where I've hidden everything. There's no escape. Wrench off a wedding ring and the finger stays runnelled. Consciousness is the in-joke that swallows me whole. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katie, for that wonderful reading that involved unsteady translations, heightened realities, and a deep sense of musicality. I think we can really tell that as a poet as well, you're really engaged with the sound and music of language and of music itself as well, and how that infuses your poetry. That was just a wonderful reading. Thank you. Our next reader is John Stone. John Stone is a Derbyshire-born poet, writer, editor, and researcher. He won an Eric Gregory Award in 2012 and the Poetry London Prize in 2014 and 2016. School of Forgery was published by Salt in 2012 and was chosen as a Poetry Book Society recommendation. And he's since released three pamphlets, Tom Boyce from Tungsten Press 2016, Unravelanche from Broken Sleep 2012, and Sandsnarl from the Emma Press 2021 as well. He designs and edits collaborative mixed media anthologies with sidekick books and has a PhD in poem video game hybrids. Jewel Reeled, the interplay of poetry and video games will be released by De Gruta in December this year. Will you please welcome John Stone. Thanks Jane, that's a really nice introduction and thanks to uh, Katie and James, those are really good readings too. Uh, okay, now I'm going to share some poems from Sansnar. Uh, so Sansnar is um, uh, a little book uh, set 
in a particular place, in, in a place called Sandsnarl, which is a settlement steeped in sand. Um, and all the poems in the book are in the voice of or about different uh, different people who live in this place. Some of them are really into living in Sandsnarl and some of them uh, sort of resist what's involved in it. Um, so I'll just dive in with the first poem from it, which is called The Thula of Sand, whose mouth hovers eternally above a cup of mead, orates the beginnings of the age of sand. Before there was a now, there was a jar. The jar contained a sandstorm, an infinitude of sand that twined and tore, intensely muscular and infinitely busy in the enterprise of sand. It lingered in a storeroom on a lip of shelf behind some milk crates, a small and secret thing, till someone missed their step or lost their grip delivering a tremor that impelled a teetering. The floor came up and what was in that jar went reeling and unreeling over all that ever was. Sand, not gravel, clay or silty tar, no hogging, pebble, cobble, soil or granite dust for us. Every road and jitty, copse and field, the squares and public gardens, all were avalanched in sand. The breweries were jammed, the ponds were filled, the market stalls and fairs dishevelled, overrun with sand. In houses, as in churches and hotels, in teacups, as in ovens, as in pantries, drifts of sand. We drank and cooked amongst its particles. We suffered it, we slept with it, we breathed and bathed in sand. It blowed and scurried through our ears, our heads, uncovering the whole of us, then hiding it again. Sand amid our folds, our fresh bed spreads, its fingers on our decks doing its shuffle hurricane. It blurred our plans, it blurred the names on stones. The border between sand and dream became a spit of sand. It choked our clocks, it doped our pheromones. Every book we owned became miscellany of sand. And now we mine the sand beneath the sand. We shovel sand, we feed it into furnaces of sand. We pray for sand and lay the blame on sand. I call my daughter sand. I call my other daughter sand. So another character from the, from the same place, slightly different relationship with the, with the place. This is called the Roboteer hesitates on the cusp before easing herself at last into the cab of her golem. Gently quaking, her flight suit a half-sloughed snakeskin, she sinks amid cables and instrumentation. This is her girl, this poor machine, once agile, whose radiator now begins to gurgle. Sand in the intakes, Sand in the joins of panels and joysticks, crackling as she runs preliminary diagnostics. Then each raises the other's stiff engine from its stasis. Her fingers dance across gamuts of indicators. Heat and a hum to hold the pair in equilibrium. She wears her summoned sweat like healing balm. 
I haven't done this one in, in readings yet. Um, I, thought, I don't know why. I don't know why it's been demoted so much in the book. I've, I've read from Sam Snell a few times and not, not, done, not done the poor Sam singer. So uh, here we go. Here's his first outing. Racked and red-eyed in a sad scrag of waistcoat, the sand singer tells why his concerts are cancelled, is the uh, title to this poem. There was a note I couldn't seem to reach, a note I'd stumbled on. This briny tune had washed up in my heart and made an itch. I tried a line in bass, then baritone, and maybe halfway through, I felt the catch. I sung that snag that fragment of a groan not too high no not too low it just existed in a cleft within my range a grain that did not melt would not be crushed and which i could not shape dissolve expunge in fact the more i played the alchemist the more it seemed to fatten in revenge it multiplied its clones advanced beyond the limits of the verse. Oh, they were clever. They hid in jingles, oddball ditties, spawned discreetly. Then they overran my oeuvre. And soon I couldn't cover up the wound. My throat was torn. I was myself a sliver. The note has birthed a pentatonic scale. Entire folk traditions now draw from it, whose adherence hold sway in every school. My star can only sputter now, then plummet. My destiny is to be minuscule, the village sot, the caterwauling hermit. Because this one isn't in, in, in the voice of any particular person, which is good because I can't actually do lots of character voices. It all just sounds like me, even though they're meant to be different characters. Um, this is sort of like a litany of different voices, a community like built a, a, voices around an absence of someone, because uh, this person has left, has gone, no longer lives in San Snell. It's called Attempts to Describe One Who Lived Here and Who May Have Been a Ghost or a Jinn or an Extraordinary Feature of the Weather. Tear away, huckster, familiar, stray, luminous plasma, perpetual affray, innocent, in a light, in on the con, whatever she was, she's gone. Tremor of headlamp, fugitive, purr, snag in the wrinkle of signature that sits on a pseudepigraphon. Whatever weight she was, she's gone, boys, she's gone. Sand cat, coyote, tarantula, mole, spy for the old foe, or central control sent to foreshadow the denouement. Whatever she was, she's gone. Fata Morgana, or siren, or sphinx, last of the glamour through which the hag slinks, masks someone wore with a will of its own. Whatever she was, she's gone, boys, gone. And I'm gonna do one last one from Sand Snarl, and then a little addendum poem, which has a has a has a link. The link is it's the same the same character turning up outside of Sand Snarl. Some of these characters are are not confined to this book. So uh, this poem introduces the tea seller. It's called um, "Traveling Tea Seller." Has laid out their stall beneath a willow tree and is entertaining their first customer. 
This, now this, inhale its pretty whiff. Puzzle, yes, a nasal logogriff. All down to how it's picked and dried. The thief who fled her city with it says its leaves are rolled on the exquisite sand-encrusted thighs of a naif. Or was it waif or novice? I, I forget. In any case, this young initiate then cures them in the salt of their own sweat, which is collected through their efforts at, I can't remember if it's sport or pleasuring some baronet. Said baronet, I may mean duke or knight, is known to have a ranging appetite. So says my thief, who was his acolyte, and more, I think, to judge by how her eyes flamed and her look turned sour. Ah, you'll take the lot? I thought you might. And then the final poem is the tea cellar again. This is called the tea cellar, and it's a little, it's, it's a bit interactive. I kind of want, if, you, if you've got kind of a note paper around you or, um, or anything like that, or you can just hold these things in your memory. The, this is a poem where you supply some of the words, you each individually supply them. So uh, write down somewhere or think of the answers to these questions. One, what do you collect? Two, uh, what was the last sensation to overwhelm you? Three, your favorite insect. Four, a word to describe the person you used to be. Five, a novel you mean to read someday. Six, the color of your undergarments. They don't have to be the ones you're wearing, just pick a color of your undergarments. Um, so if you've, if you've got those, I'll leave those up for just a second for people to finish writing and then have them ready to fill in the bits of the poem. This is the tea seller talking again, um, just on a different occasion to, uh, to you rather than to a, a customer in, a, in the town of Sandsnarl. What would I recommend? Oh, I have no favorites. That said, there is a leaf, recently arrived in fact, black and delicate, not long plucked, dried over burning, here, insert your number one word. Treated with oil of number two. The experience of tasting it for the first time has been likened, not by me, I should add, to a or number three, emerging from a burrow in the brain. It has not been popular, I admit, with my more number four customers. The name comes, I think, from number five. It's the name of a minor character who appears only very briefly, I am told, and carries a modified railway lantern, which shines a number six light. Okay, thank you very much, everyone. Um, and I'll hand back to Jane so she can introduce Chrissy. Thank you so much, John, for those wonderful poems. So I'm feeling a little bit wary of that uh, unreliable tea cellar. I'm not sure I'm going to be brewing any of that tea anytime soon. But um, what a wonderful reading and finely tuned poems that really invite us to be interactive with them from virtual fires to imagined worlds all alive with really finely um, observed details. So thank you very much, John, for the wonderful poems. Our final reader for this event is Chrissy Williams. 
So to tell you a little bit about Chrissy. Um, Chrissy is a poet, editor and tutor based in London. Her work has been regularly featured on the BBC and her first collection, Bear, from Blood Axe in 2017, was one of the Telegraph's 50 best books of the year. She's the author of numerous pamphlets and edits the poetry magazine, Perverse. Her second poetry collection, Low, was published by Blood Axe in 2021 and is an exploration of identity in the face of loss. You can follow her on social media at Chrissy Williams. And Chrissy Williams, um, a comment here from Marcus Lees of Shearsman. Chrissy Williams is opening a space for British experimental poetry with its generosity towards the reader. Perfectly summing up Chrissy's wonderful poetry. Will you please give her a round of applause? Thank you very much, Jane. Um, I feel obliged to tell John that in that last poem of his, I ended up with the oil of fear, which um, I just thought was really nice and does sound like something I would have in my house. Um, yeah, those readings are all really great. It, it's really fun to be here. Um, uh, Katie, I was going to tell you as well, your poem of the week of death, where you were reading the one on the left and I was reading the version along on the right and I think there's fun to be had there that's the opposite of accessibility but fun to be had there giving people the wrong versions to read anyway I'm not doing that I'm giving you the right versions to read let me let me start so I'm going to be reading from Low, my new book let's open this up okay so here's the first poem I'm going to read for you that's inspired by RuPaul's Drag Race on lip syncing for your life. If I really had to lip sync for my death, I would be screaming every word. Just think, your final song and you don't get to choose it for yourself. Someone else critiques, someone else's audience from hell. And if they give you something difficult, the world might fall away just because you never learned to be fierce, to fake it till you make it. Maybe that's where I've gone wrong, not pretending hard enough, performing who I want to be. Oblivion. Don't think oblivion for faltering to Kesha. Think oblivion for botched death drops from 10,000 feet. Fail big, don't fail at home, fail as publicly as possible. Pose for your final selfie. Imagine dancing to a funeral march, the Lord's Prayer, your family's favorite hymns. You know, I stopped mouthing words in church years ago. Oh, um, when I was trying to decide what to read this evening, um, as the theme of the festival, one of the themes of the festival is play. And, you know, this, this event is called Messing Around as well. Um, what I thought I would do is read from one of the sections in the book that intersperses these two quite different types of poems all the way through. The first kind of poem is, well, it's all different kinds of poems, but the first ones are all uh, set in LA in and around LA, Disneyland, a place basically that I find it quite easy to feel uh, disassociated <laughs> from what's going on around me. Um, and 
every other poem in this section is a little short poem called Improv. And these little improv poems are literally um, notes I made while I was studying improv. Um, they're just, they're actually quite prosaic uh, bits of advice for how to be a better, improvi better improviser. But I think hopefully you'll see like the atmosphere of the LA poems juxtaposed with these. For this event felt like it's using some kind of playfulness to combat the other poems, which really are about how we process loss and how we deal with loss. Yeah, improv is a great art form, by the way. It's about spontaneity and playfulness and embracing your mistakes and embracing your failures in a way that, that I don't think any other art form really does. So uh, let me find the next poem and I will, great. Okay. Thank you, by the way, for having me and, and everyone for listening. This is a really great event. Okay. LA story. A hot dog flies over the hills of Hollywood. An endless gesture, a tired clown. Let your mind go and your body will follow. Learn to laugh, learn to be happy, learn how to predict the weather. Oh, improv. What isn't said isn't known. No one can read between the lines when there are none. You don't need to be obvious, just be clear. Remember, you are always communicating. Magic Kingdom. The business of mice is serious. Not everyone wears pants. Barf up your pain, a pineapple. Wear the ears, laugh. Improv. So much communication is physical. Learn to read other people's signals. Do not fear your partner's eye contact. Even silence can be listened to. Moon illusion. Unruly city, great lit face, low behind tall palms, flamingo taco trucks. Death perches on my shoulder, small feathers, a smile beaked in black. I know now, as she nods to me, there is nothing, nothing left to worry about. Improv. Look out for shiny things that are unusual. Be specific. See what works and follow it into a pattern. 
rest the game so it has more impact when you play it. The cardinal, the cardinal sin is being boring. Oh, this one has two epigraphs. Um, the first epigraph is from Griffith J. Griffith, who's the guy who built that famous Griffiths Observatory in, in LA that's in Rebel Without a Cause, which is where a lot of the lines from this poem are taken. So yes, his quote, his, um, uh, his very optimistic quote is, if all mankind could look through that telescope, it would change the world. And then the other epigraph is something James Dean says in Rebel Without a Cause. Hey, it's all over. The world ended. At Griffith Observatory. I look into the night sky and see a star increasingly bright. I would like some dirt, please. Do you have some dirt? If I stand in the place where stories happen, I become part of the fiction. My body photographed from all angles, our faces interchangeable. Please now bring me some dirt. As the star approaches, the weather will change, the great polar fields will rot, the seas will warm, the great people of the world will look on. Please bring me some dirt now, bring me some dirt. We will disappear into blackness, even you will disappear. We will disappear into the space from which we came, destroyed as we began in a burst of gas and fire. Dirt, now, I want some dirt. In all the immaturity of our universe, the earth will not be missed. Just one story in a billion with an ending. Improv. Commit to your character. Make bold choices. Don't be scared of big emotions. This isn't a normal day. This is the day something finally happens. Sunset and La Brea. Driving on, Jerry told me the Chaplin Studios off Sunset and La Brea were taken over by Henson, who superimposed a Kermit head where Charlie Chaplin's used to be, which I took to mean that everything is ephemeral, including our systems for attributing worth, meaning and reputation. You know, LA was a desert once. The Grand Canyon wasn't always a canyon. And what happens when you turn the sprinklers off, turn the sprinklers on, and I watched that video about being turned into a tree after you die, no matter what happened in your personal life. Though they say cremation is more practical, but what is practical, really? And I wonder at what point in human history the dead started to outnumber the living pretty quickly, I guess, with survival of the fittest. Still, I like being alive in a time of Muppets as the world goes on changing. And who wouldn't want to fall in love with everything? 
to reach a hand out the window as it all breezes past. Improv. Surrender yourself to this moment. Learn to be spontaneous. The best way to avoid being afraid is to pretend you are someone who is not afraid. React to what is happening. If this is true, what else is true? Yellow reflection. Are we all small clowns at heart, out of costume, weeping banana peels? Improv. Accept mistakes as gifts. Don't ignore them. You don't need to force them. You don't need to be afraid of them. You can choose how much of yourself to reveal. You can choose whether to use your losses. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chrissy, for a reading that was multifaceted and precise and every bit as sobering as it was humorous and its exploration of everything from pain and silence to drag race, Disney, tired, tired clowns and improvised communication. What a wonderful set of poems. And it's been just brilliant listening to all of our wonderful guest poets in this part of the event and um, listening to you all read your um beautiful poetry. Can I just, um, we've, I think we've got a few minutes left of the event. So just before we finish, if I could um, ask each poet to maybe respond with just a couple of words about what, what it is about kind of serious play and wordplay that um, really for you is an integral part of your work, why you use it or what you feel it can do for your, for your work as we've just got a few moments left. Sorry to put you all on the spot, but it's been so fascinating listening to all of your individual approaches to how you use language in all of these playful, interesting, serious, engaging ways. So maybe if I could just ask you all to give us a 30 second, um, one minute, <laughs> um, quick sort of insight really into why particularly for you that's, that's part of your writing. And who'd like to go first? <laughs> Go, go on, John, you look like you're going to dive in. <laughs> well, well, play is exploration, right? Like this, it's how, like, as a species, we find things out and we, we work, work things out. Like, it's a, it's a way of, of being, like, pioneering. You try, you've got to keep trying new things and switching things around. And, and what we're looking for is ways to, to understand, you know, to understand and communicate with each other more clearly and, and build language into something that, that serves us better. That's, that's my 30-second answer. Thank you, That's really good, John. And I was going to say that I think words and very often there are happy accidents when you come across a word and you stumble over it, and you pronounce it incorrectly, and it just leads off to something else. Absolutely what you're saying, John, it's this whole adventure and discovery and, and very much they they form a kind of a counterpoint to themselves if that doesn't sound too strange. But I think that's what they do. Thank you, Kennedy. Yeah, I um, so much poetry for me is about juxtaposition, and so I think when you're using playfulness to highlight seriousness, it can it can reveal even more about it than if you were just trying to sort of 
one note your way through through it but probably the but probably the real answer is like the old joke of well think of the alternative <laughs> like a land with no play i don't know i think Thank you. uh for me, it comes back to Susan Sontag's quote about camp, that sense of camp is a way to dethrone the serious. And I think that's how I approach writing camp poetry as a way to mock and disempower those things that might have disempowered queer people in the past. Uh, and if you can laugh at something, it's not controlling you. And that's how I try to approach erase that sense of just showing, yeah, that this thing has been disempowered because we can mock it and play with it. Thank you so much, James. That's a wonderful point, I think, on which to end this evening's readings. It's been an absolute delight. And can I just say um, a huge thank you to Poetry Olbra for inviting our four wonderful poets, Katie Griffiths, Chrissy Williams, John Stone and James McDermott to read. Thank you from me to Paul and to Robin and everyone else at Poetry Olbra for asking me to host. It's been a total pleasure. And um, thanks again to Poetry Olbra for such a, a wonderful um, reading this evening. And as ever, lovely to be a part of the festival and to feel the warmth and um, celebration of poetry that it brings every year. Um, thank you very much. Good night, everybody. <laughs>